As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. On today's episode, we're talking about the article from the Winter 2023 edition of The Classical Teacher by Martin Cothran called The Culmination of the Classical Hero. Now, Martin... I noticed you called it The Article. Oh, capital please. T, The Article. <laughs> now, Martin, am I correct that this article is run in the catalog a number of times? It's or is it just... No, it's new. Brand new. Wasn't, isn't this very similar to the Christmas article you ran in 20... There were part... I used 20? part of the same... Uh, one of the one of the debates that I refer to in here uh, between G.K. Chesterton and Robert Blatchford, the British newspaperman, uh, I ref- referenced in there. Uh, so that's probably what you're thinking. Mm. I, I was thinking that all of your articles are just different stories that are telling the same story. It's the mono article. It's the mono article. <laughs> now, before we get into discussing the mono article, I did want to ask you all a question. What are you reading right now? Paul, you been reading anything interesting? I just finished Andy Catlett. Oh, um, oh really? I did. No, yes. isn't Andy Catlett who Wendell Berry says is kind of himself? Well, he, Wendell Berry doesn't say that. Oh, but that's what other people say about him. He's one yes. of the characters yes. okay. is Wendell. Okay. Yes. Uh, which is very it? nice. I I thought that book was, as as I was finishing it, I realized, because I, I thought it was going to be more about Andy's adulthood because that's what most of his books are is somebody's adult experience and it's not his it's his experience as a kid mm. and i thought this is and and he might he might get mad at me for saying this but i felt like it was a coming of age novel that is extremely different from any other coming of age novel because he's learning to be an adult it's not just him goofing off and getting you know getting in troubles sort of thing and then realizing oh you know there may be something better but it's the community teaching him what it means to be a man. And I, and I loved that whole aspect mm. of it. No. Have, have you both read Andy Kellett? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, uh, Andy Catlett is Wendell Berry, the author. And, and so is Jaber Crow, uh, I would say. Jaber Crow is the one he told me that he, um, had been waiting years to write. Like it was mm. inside of him for a long, long time before mm. he wrote it. Andy Catlett, he wrote after he wrote so many adult stories about Andy. And then he went back. Andy Catlett is one of the newer. I don't think, I, I think Dave typed that one, not me. Mm. I've read it. Martin, what are you reading recently? Well, I just, um, now I, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm I'm about to finish uh, the Life of Greece by Will Durant, which I've been reading for a little while. I'm really greatly enjoying. Uh, Will Durant um, is a really really great writer, and his ability to amass all of this historical information and put it into this very literate, very um, uh, scholarly work, but just a joy to read. Um, it's just it's just amazing. Uh, I've also started the Three Musketeers. No. Um, I was going to read that, and Paul told me it wasn't very good. No, that is not what I intended to convey. <laughs> <laughs> I believe what I said was, if you were expecting the same caliber of work as Count of Monte Cristo from Dumas, you're not going to get it. Mm. Mm. 
Well, I don't I'm know. I put it back it anyway. on the shelf. I'm, I'm reading it. Okay. Anyway. Uh, it's a great. It's a great. It's a great book. I mean, just enjoyable book. I just don't think just it rises to the same level. And I do I'm think totally, it, I'm, I'm not finished it now. I think at some point, as a bit on the show, we should decide which of the musketeers the three of you are. Who are you, D'Artagnan? I'm obviously D'Artagnan. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that was my point. Is that yeah. the hero? No, well, he's no, the younger. I'm just one at the beginning of the story. He's kind of flaky right now. <laughs> and then uh, for my just fun book, I uh, just just finished uh, Sackett the, oh. in the in the in the Sackett cycle. Louis Lamour. Louis Lamour. Yeah. And it, and started Mojave Crossing, which is which is the next one in the Sackett series, which I think, mm. I think Louis Lamour is fabulous. Yeah. Now, you just uh, completed a pretty grueling, but I'm sure it was a very life giving trip to the West Coast. Yes. Did you find time to read while you were? I around did, Angeles. but I chose to take with me a 700-page book, which oh, was wow. a mistake <laughs> because I'm hauling around this huge book. I'm reading The Winners by Frederick Bachman, which oh. is I have to read so that your wife and I can discuss it. Okay. So I've read everything that he wrote, and this is the – I don't know why he wrote such a huge book this mm. time, but I am enjoying it. And I did have a little time to read, but not a lot. Yeah. And that's all I took with this is me. someone I've never heard of. Mm. Oh, his books are so good. There's a movie out now with Tom Hanks called A Man Called Otto that's based on his book, A Man Called Uv. Oh. O-V-E. Okay. It, what, he what wrote that. The name of the uh, author? Frederick Bachman. Okay. It may be Bachman. It may be Bachman. I don't really know how to pronounce it. Oh. I do know how to pronounce Brian Jake, though. And I wondered if that... Thank you for that. Brian Jake. It's not Jacques. You, no. Okay. If you're just listening to this and not watching, I just hit Martin, so it's probably worth watching. And it's not the first time. (laughs) My wife has also read everything. Yes, yes. We're going to have a great, um, you're going to babysit Jack and we're going to meet together and um, talk about it. That sounds like a great time. Or Jack can come with us. Yeah, Yeah, that would be great too, but maybe better. So recently I've been reading um, a complete guide to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Oh, that's fun. So like once a year I try to give serious time in my reading to poetry. So last year around this time, I spent like three weeks reading the age of anxiety, but and then some commentaries on it. And the reason I picked that one is because I love the author, Alan Jacobs. And I hope he hears someday that I like him and he writes me a letter. But (laughs) He did a critical edition of the age of anxiety. And so I picked up his copy and the poem is nearly inscrutable, but I, enjoyed the experience of trying to wrestle with it. And so I've decided that this year it's going to be the wasteland. And so I'm about 40 pages into this little guide. That's really, really well written. I think it's a Cornell guide and it's just talking about the history of the poem, but then also the themes of it and just trying to give someone like me a, a a way to get into a poem that many people have said doesn't really have a point. You know, that's some of the, some people have critiqued it that way, but others have said it's magisterial. So I, I'm reading this guide and then I'll try to get into the poem. I will, I will make the point that uh, Memorial College has had uh, several classes on Eliot poems that people oh. can check in, check out. There you go. I feel like that's such an obscure choice. Hmm. How did you well, choose? It's, it's that? because of my appreciation for Alan Jacobs. He's an mm-hmm. author. His scholarship has been that I've read. has been in Lewis, Eliot, and Auden, and they're all kind of, and so in, in his book, The Pleasures of Reading the Age of Distraction, he argues that you should try to read upstream and downstream from authors. And I've kind of done that with him. So he uh, he wrote about 
Lewis and Auden and Elliot. And so I've kind of gone back to them because I enjoyed him so much. But he didn't write the guide that you're using. Not this one for Elliot. I see. That's right. But he's the one that pointed kind you in that direction. Yeah. That yeah. direction. Yeah. yeah. So the article that we're going to discuss today is written by the one and only Martin Cothran. And Martin, I want to ask you, what caused you or what inspired you to write this particular article? Were you wrestling with some of the kind of apologetic questions that are in the back end or is this just an idea that you love? What, what caused you to put pen to paper with, with this one? Um, I, I, I don't know if I can really even answer that question. I, I, I think I've, I've, I've wanted to write something specifically on this for a while. This, uh, idea of Christ as the ultimate hero, um, to which all others are sort of imitations in some way. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in here, Joseph Campbell's idea of the monomyth and how that's been used, uh, to, to subordinate Christ as just another hero that's, that, that is part of this drama of the monomyth. And, uh, there are, I've, I've heard this argument articulated. Lewis sort of makes it, Tolkien makes it, Chesterton was the first to make it. And, and so I, I just, I just wanted to, I wanted to put it all in one place. I had a lot of thoughts on this. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I've had other articles that have sort of dealt with a, with a related issue, but I wanted to, I wanted to just put it down in one statement. The, 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 the whole argument of, of Christ is the ultimate hero and everything else really is the imitation. Yeah. Um, now, Tony, the first sentence has an allusion to George Lucas's The Star Wars. Have you seen this movie? <laughs> I have. In fact, I'm old enough that I saw the original. And then I took my children to see it, which was a bizarre moment. And it was brand new to them. And But to me, it was like, okay, I'm going, I'm paying money again to see a movie that came out 20 years ago. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Was this, so you were watching... The I, same movies that came out in the 70s again yes. with your kids? Or were you watching the... No, it was the exact same movie. They, they digitally re- remastered They re-released the it oh, when the, the other ones were coming out. I thought out. you might have been talking about the the prequels that came oh, out. Oh, no, no. This was the original. It was the first time. It was interesting because when Star Wars, the original, came out, I think, were we in college? Were college age, maybe? That Dave and I were. 1977, I believe. Okay, so... And, and that was that was the year I graduated from high school. Okay, and me too. So that... No, maybe. I don't remember. Because I remember... I think you and I are the same age. We, we somehow... Because, you know, in, in one sense, we think back of it, and it was a surprise movie because it it, it, it came out and it had all this... Um, it, well, the for special some reason, effects. When we went to see it, which was like the first week it came out, everybody knew about it. I, I grew mm-hmm. up in Southern California, so uh, about seven of my buddies, we all get together we drive down to Westwood, California, the UCLA campus, because this big theater there. So we all got into the row about the like the tenth row, and we we, we got in, and we all just sat there and closed our eyes and waited for <laughs> for the movie to start. When it, when we start, we all <laughs> and then then a friend of mine goes in the restroom, and Lou Ferrigno, who was the Incredible Hulk on TV, is yeah. in the bathroom. It's an wow. incredible time. Wow! Uh, and so <laughs> and so. Uh, yeah, I he has a more detailed memory of this movie than I do. The thing that blew me away was that scene where he's in the in the tunnel 
toward the end, I think, oh, yeah. where he's in the tunnel. And there has never been anything like that in a movie before that. I mean, now it's just like nothing. But at that point, that was huge that you could do that kind of thing and actually feel like you were in that. And that guy's saying, steady, steady. <laughs> you have to be old to really appreciate what a Well, because diff- now all that special effects it's just every it's, day. It's just yeah, everyday mm. stuff. Now, Paul, when you saw Star Wars A New Hope, were you unimpressed because it's too derivative from a character I was hidden fortress <laughs> that it was based on? <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually, since you're asking my impression, well, my my mother was not big on letting us watch television. <laughs> and I remember always like I would end up at a friend's house and I would catch like five minutes of star Wars. I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. And, um, I would have probably followed in Tanya's footsteps, except I had a buddy who was like, okay, we need to fix you. And he invited me over for to sleep at his house that one night. And in one night we watched the three original, um, episodes and he explained it all to me. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. This is wonderful. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, at that age, I wasn't putting anything together. But by the time The Phantom Menace came out, I remember going and watching that in in theaters. And that's where all of this, you know, the, the sort of the classical storyline became very apparent to me. Because as a kid, I mean, I'm not thinking, like, you're not thinking about who Darth Vader is. Right. Um. But then when you see the conversation of Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn with Anakin's mother and she's like, I, I just got pregnant. Like it wasn't a thing, you know? And then you're like, Oh, this sounds very much like what I know from the Bible. And, and that's when I started going, huh? That's when my mother got really turned off by it because she (laughs) thought that they were, they were trying to twist the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, that's why I ask you about Star Wars is because I want to hear Martin, you as well, connect why that opening illustration was helpful for clarifying your point. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Do you need to customize your curriculum for the year, but don't want to juggle all the separate lesson plans? Memoria Press has you covered. Introducing the digital customized curriculum manual. Like our standard printed curriculum manuals that you know and love, the digital customized curriculum manual contains all the same comprehensive teaching guidelines, complete lesson plans, and appendix materials, but tailored to the needs of your students, and for the same price. You can purchase a standalone customized manual and build it from scratch yourself, or you can buy it as part of a customizable curriculum package, which will automatically import all the subject changes you make in your package. No matter how you purchase, you can always navigate to My Curriculum Manuals on your account at memoriapress.com to download your customized curriculum manual and get the latest updates to your lesson plans. Visit our website for more information or contact our customer service representatives for any assistance with creating your new manual. Memoria Press, classical, Christian, complete. Martin, you use Star Wars as an example of the monomyth. Why is it a good example of the kind of story or, or plot that you're setting up for your article? I think for two reasons. One is everybody knows it, as we mm. just demonstrated. Sure. Uh, and the second is because um, because it's it, it was it was the first time it was reading an article about Star Wars, and I think it was in this is many many years ago, like in USA Today or something, where Lucas talks about this. He talks about reading Campbell and and these people and and 
how all this, this, um, all his characters, parts of the plot line, all these things were really taken from old, old stories. And, and, and it just, I was really fascinated by the whole concept of the fact that, that modern stories could just be pieces and parts reassembled from older stories, that it's all there. That, that, that idea just fascinates me. Johnny, when it comes to the monomyth, the, what Marty's talking about, could you kind of describe that in layman's terms, perhaps? What does Martin mean by this hero's journey, the story that Joseph Campbell talked about? Well, I only know that based on reading Martin's article. That's I've all never you heard need to know. I've never heard of monomyth before. Had you heard of it before? I hadn't used heard of that expression, but it it makes it does make sense, makes sense. that everything came did from it? um did you invent that? You didn't, did you? I'll did t- Joseph I'll, Campbell I'll go ahead and take credit for it. Right did now. Joseph Campbell use that term? Uh, yeah. No, yeah, well, I yeah, well, I'm then not please sure, don't take sure, credit for it. <laughs> I'm not sure he did. Uh, but this is this is very common in in the literature, 20th century literature. Okay. Well, I guess I'm now I'm now I'm a bit confused because I feel like you're trying to compare Darth Vader to Jesus. Well, and I'm not getting I, that, that you at were all. Looking at Paul, right? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just okay. not. I get a little bit of that, but I you guess do. it's not a perfect. You do, but but that's the thing is like I think. The Your mother would here, not be happy that you're comparing Darth Vader to no, Jesus. <laughs> that Lucasfilm made it very apparent with it with a with a virgin birth, right? Uh, okay. Uh, so so Anakin, you know, has no father. I don't think I recognize That's, that because wasn't she married to to mm-hmm. somebody? No, there. No, oh, no. I in episode oh, one, she was never two, married. The, the one that came out in the early two thousands, the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. That's where it's made very, very clear that it was a virgin. It was a okay, virgin so birth. immaculate conception. We've got. Uh, and can I make a point here? It's on since you're since Paul's bringing this up, um, the, uh, the the monomyth can be used in a bunch of different ways. It doesn't have to be direct. Right, it's not. You can't. It's not just a direct Christian parable of some kind at all. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Lucas's Star Wars is very Taoist. This this balance in the Force thing. The I, I think mm-hmm. of the the yin and the yang symbol. There they they balance each. Other. That's not. That's certainly not a Christian. Well, it's, idea. it's a Manichaean sort of. But it's a myth, idea. it's a mythic idea. You do see that in, in particularly Eastern mythologies. He's even, he's even appealing to Eastern mythologies here. So. Uh, you know, it, there's not any kind of one-on-one correspondence. Okay, well, I just got confused when he started talking about the virgin it, birth right, and Darth it, Vader because I couldn't then make the connection with the rest of this. Well, it seems right, like we're Luke, talking about Luke actually does a better job of that. Of lining up. It seems yeah. like we're talking about two things that are related, but yes. the relationship between them needs to be clarified. Yeah. That I is, There's we, the hero's yeah. journey, but then there's also the biblical story. And the biblical story seems to be what lies behind the hero's journey, which I think is the point of Martin's article. But the only place it's perfected is in the biblical story. Right. But the hero's journey seems to show up in all stories. That's isn't right. That, isn't that your point, Martin? Yeah. There, the, that there is this one central story, which he calls the monomyth, um, which uh, which has various different versions and spinoffs. And you see this throughout um, particularly Western literature and mythology 
And so at the beginning of the article, that, that's what I talk about. I talk about these elements of the story that are common to many, if not all of these stories in some way. And it, it's different iterations in, in different stories throughout, throughout Western Do you literature. Does every story have all of these in it? Uh, not necessarily, no. no. Okay, so I think we need to talk then about, I think what you're asking me is is what is a monomyth. What are these, yeah, what are these features of the monomyth that he lays out here that we see in stories? Right, so I can just, he can either tell you or I can read them to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, instead you should read the article. But I guess I was thinking of like in the Odyssey and the Aeneid, in both stories, Odysseus has a journey into the underworld. Mm-hmm. He has some kind of death. Mm-hmm. Um Aeneas, he goes into the journey, on, into the underworld. If you watch John Christensen's video he did on epics, he talks about this this Anabasis, this going down that all heroes go in. And then also in both stories, they get a uh, well, not in both of those stories. In the Iliad, and the in the Aeneid, in the Iliad, they take a shield, you know, and then it, um, the shield of Achilles. And then in the Aeneid, Aeneas takes a shield. These are tokens um, that they are given and. He didn't mention that here in the, in in his article, but many people when they're well, describing he, the hero's he, journey, he talks about tokens in point two. Yeah, okay. uh, but, but mostly paternity. And Another. Achilles also is a hero that has a um, a god for a father. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, very very common. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, in one way to describe the monument is the is 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 a pattern mm. or a uh, a set of patterns that reoccur again and again. So miraculous birth from a divine parent, mm-hmm. an initiation of some kind, which I think is that's probably some true, people, really true. Yeah, and some people talk about like a guide or a mentor. So in, you know, in the Odyssey, you have mentor. In Star Wars, you have Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, right. You know, so there's a lot of times the initiation involves some kind of mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, the hero withdrawing from the world and preparing for greatness. Mm-hmm. Is that's where Anakin we, goes wrong? Christ goes into the. Into that's the where wilderness. Anakin goes wrong mm-hmm. by withdrawing from the world. He did not actually fully oh, withdraw. He from didn't the world. withdraw mm-hmm. from the world. He should. That's your spiritual moment. Mm-hmm. That's when you go to a monastery mm-hmm. for a week, or sit on a hill. Yeah. Yes, yes. Or a few years. The Rocky montage when he's running through the streets. Or a few years. Yes. <laughs> Rocky. No, that's really Rocky. true. That, that's, okay, that's, that's the point of this. Is that Sylvester it's, Stallone. It's universal in stories. Yeah. Stories, you know, heroic stories. And a trial can't or a quest. In any other way than than as as uh, some assemblage of these patterns. Right. If you don't have a trial or quest, you really don't have a story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then some sort of death. Oh, then going to the underworld, which you've already talked about. And then, um, coming back from that. And the example you give is Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, which I don't remember the three hunters. Oh, the three hunters. Oh, I know. That's, um, what's his name? Just, uh, the Aragorn. Yes, very good. Aragorn. And um, <laughs> I'm so excited about this. That she could actually bring up Lord of the Rings yeah. trivia here. This is great. Eric you know, our audience may not learn anything from this episode. Who was but with she him? <laughs> oh, um, uh, starts with a P. Mm. Little Hobbit. Little Hobbit. No, not no. when they not when they met Gandalf the White. Okay, who are the other two? It's the dwarf and the elf. <laughs> oh, Gimli yeah. and Legolas. Yes. Well, so so, and I think. That and, and Tolkien, I think, is key here because he has, 
he has um, this insight, the same insight that's really the subject of this article. And it is, he instantiates it in this, in the story of the Lord of the Rings, I think. And, and, and the Lord of the Rings is really, I think, intentionally a Christian story. You know, you have all these other secular versions of this, but then Tolkien comes up with the great, um, uh, the great modern example of the Christian monomyth. Uh, which, so I, I think. So really, for him, is it Aragorn? Well, no. Okay, that's the, no, that's that's the beauty the of Tolkien is Again. that it's not it's not a one to one. You know, you can see this one character going through all of these things. But that a, a lot of the characters, right? So you've got Frodo, you've oh, got Sam. Gandalf, you've got Sam, you've got a bunch of Aragorn. They're all mm-hmm. do, having different kind of. They show these different elements at different times. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Frodo is Frodo is carrying. He, he's the ring bearer. He's carrying this thing that th- throughout the story, he's suffering for the carrying of this mm-hmm. thing. It's it's almost like the the bur- the burden of sin or something. Uh, and kind of going into Mordor is, is yeah. like the the death, and mm-hmm. then you know you have back Aragorn out. who is who is the prince in exile. He hasn't come back yet, right? Uh, and then you have Gandalf, uh, who is also kind of I think the third great Christ figure in the story. Um, you know he he and fights he does for the go to the underworld. He, the descent into hell mm-hmm. from the Apostles' Creed is sort of I think demonstrated in that story too. Mm-hmm. So it's I think he's very he's and he's. I think he's doing it very consciously. I was going to say, do you think Tolkien actually had all this complicated oh, stuff in his head when he oh, created these characters? I think, I yeah. think that is just would take brilliance to do. Yeah. I think one of the marks of a, of a great skilled storyteller is the ways that they can weave the hero's journey into their story without it being a one for one. Mm-hmm. It's not a formula. It's just these right. are how you tell great mm-hmm. stories is weaving yeah. it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Martin, you move from kind of describing what the monomyth is to then relating it to Christianity specifically and a particular objection to Christianity. The objection is that Christianity, it so resembles all of these other um, ancient religions and mythologies that it must be just one other ancient mythology or religion. But you say that actually the resemblance is part of what helps us to know that it's actually true. Could you tease that out? Well, yeah. So the, the argument of this article is that uh, Christianity is the central pattern and all these other things are rearrangements of the pattern or taking parts of it and uh, this, sort of, this sort of thing. And I, what's interesting to me about Chesterton here, who I bring in, who was so influential on Tolkien and Lewis, um, and I, I, think, I think he may be where Tolkien got his understanding of this because I don't see any other writer making this observation that because what Tolkien does is he takes that argument that that we've got all these things that we've talked about all these patterns and parts of patterns that we we see through all these stories and so what what um, Joseph Campbell believed what a lot of these uh, people who study myth have long believed is that, Christianity is just another monomyth, another, and the, another and one example reason of the monomyth. Is because some of these other stories come before Christianity. I think mm-hmm. that's what yeah, the point then sure. that Chesterton's making is. I mean, it's easy to say, well, this story was already here, so then um, Christians just made an, up another story that fits what they wanted yeah, to that, believe. That, that that complicates the yeah that that sort of seems that on on first sight to bolster the point. 
of those who believe that Christianity is just another monomyth is that some of these came before Christianity. Right. So, so the the fact that you have these stories that are not only uh, historically universal, they 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 occur in before and after the Christian story, and you have them appearing in cultures all over the world that never had any contact with each other. Um, that's the point. That's that's the main point. And you can use that to argue that Christianity is just another monomyth. But what uh, what Chesterton, I think. In, as far as I can tell, is the first to do is to turn that on its head, turn that because that, that's that's a fairly modern observation, right? In the modern period, where, where we're arguing that Christianity is just another monument, um, Chesterton comes in and says, "No, wait a minute. Wouldn't it make more sense if you looked at these things to say that Christianity is not another instantiation of the monomyth, but that?" All of these other stories that 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 Christianity is itself the central monomyth, and that if that had been if that had really happened, if the gospel story had really happened, if they even you know including the whole you know Old Testament, New Testament, if all that had really happened, then wouldn't we expect all of these imitations of it? Mm. If it was if it was the thing toward which all things were going, that there was going to be born a god in human flesh, wouldn't you expect that you would see this in, in other stories as men thought deeply uh, about about history? That it and would be just part of our imagination that, anyway. That we're born into the world with this built into us, with, mm-hmm. with, with, so that when we see it in our lives, it's like, yeah, that's, that just, that seems to fit reality in some fundamental way that we're, we're, we're born to perceive that, 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 that this monomyth has already been there. So Chesterton comes in and he just completely turns the argument around on Robert Blatchford, who was a famous newspaperman uh, in in the early 20th century in England and, and who had invited all of these people to uh, challenge him on the issue of the truth of religion and his own atheism. And Chesterton came in there and basically makes this point, you know, that, that Blatchford points out that there's many myths parallel to the Christian story, that there were pagan Christs and red Indian incarnations and Patagonian crucifixions, but does not Mr. Blatchford see the other side of the fact? If the Christian God really made the human race, would not the human race tend to rumors and perversions of the Christian God? If the center of our life is a certain fact, would not people far from the center have a muddled version of that fact? If we're so made that a son of God must deliver us, is it odd that Patagonians should dream of a son of God? I mean, I just think that's a brilliant insight. And I think it's what what Tolkien takes in his essay on fairy stories in, in, the, in the volume uh, essays presented to Charles Williams uh, that included essays from a number of the Inklings. Um, and and this is the argument that that uh, that brought C.S. Lewis to Christianity. I mean, that's how important this is. Paul, can you help us clarify the relationship between the hero's journey that appears in the beginning of the article and the apologetic argument that Martin just made? What what does the hero's journey? How does that help us to see that the Christian story is the central story? Well, I mean, if you. I, I, honestly, I had no idea where Martin was going with this article when I started reading it. And 
and every time I read one of Martin's articles, I like to pick them apart, see what flaw I can find in them. <laughs> and as I was going through the his uh, five points of the hero's journey, I was like, well, he better address that this sounds really darn close to Christianity if he doesn't, right? And so thankfully, that was what the whole article was about. I was like, dang it, I can't can't poke that hole in his argument. Um, but it, there's if there's this idea that there's a common hero's journey, right? And then as Christians, we would want to say that as, as the title of the article is the culmination of the classical hero. Like what there's, if, if there is a, if there's a common sort of pattern, then there's probably a prototype, right? Or, you know, or there's, there's a perfection of this, right? And it's sort of a, of a, a platonic ideal. And that's where I think, you know, the, the argument is, is a fairly easy one to make. And, and I don't think the, the early Christians never had an issue with it. Right. The early Christians were well versed in, in, in pagan beliefs, right. You can't, you couldn't live in that society and not know these stories. And so it would have been, it, it was very easy for them to say, not only was there revelation in the Hebrew culture, that this was coming, right? Not only was there expect this expectation of a Messiah, but that in the Roman and Greek cultures, there were people longing for this. And we have the answer to it. In the same way that Paul goes to 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 the to the pagans and says, You've got this altar to the unknown God. You know that you're missing something, but you're longing for it. And that their their own the, the storytelling they did in their own culture was was preparing them for it. And if we could just look at Greek mythology, which, you know, some people struggle with because it is it does seem to be the opposite of what we teach in Christianity. But it really if if you could just look at it as the fact that God had not made himself known to those people, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't already infused in them and they were just looking for explanations that they felt they needed. They knew something was missing. Yeah, that human nature fits this pattern. Mm. So so when you see something that 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 matches that, you're automatically drawn to it. And I think th- this is what you just said, I think is really important because it is hard to give an apologetic to a lot of people about why read the Greek myths. I think this is the apologetic. Mm-hmm. Right here. Well, and I mean, it's, it's funny because I remember re- re- learning... Out of Delaire's Greek myths, the story of Deucalion and the Flood. Deucalion, Deucalion, uh uh-huh, whatever. Yeah, I know. Um, and it never occurred to me as a child that that could be used to undermine the legitimacy of the Bible. To me, it was, well, then evidently the flood happened, right? Whereas, you know, it, uh, maybe Campbell would take it and say, well, it didn't actually happen. It was just a shared myth that everybody everybody right. had. But but it, it for me, like it as I, a person of faith, I never being brought up flood, as a yeah. person of faith. Yeah, and that, and I don't mention the flood in here. But that's another that's another one. So it, that 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 myth is common to cultures all over the world. Why is that? And and to to say that's just a myth. Well, then why does everybody have the same? <laughs> There had to have been a flood what? at some point. Yeah, is there? Yeah. There's there's something common. that something caused this. What is it? So I think this maybe would be one area of pushback, and maybe you would agree. And it's it's just not as clear in your article that you seem to be focusing in very specifically on the hero's journey. 
Um, but I read a book, I think by an author named Thomas Foster, how to read literature like a professor. If you've heard of this, yeah, oh. from most of, the, uh, yeah, most of the professors I've known, I don't really want to know how to read like them. But well, I understand that's a popular. His book. his argument it, through is he goes through various kinds of scenes that are thematic in literature, like table eating at, at a table, or when it starts raining outside, or things like that. Kind like common universal human experiences. Well, where in in great literature, often it's over the table where people come together for the first time and they share, you know. That that's a, usually a place of unity, just like in, in the scripture, um, but also in a lot of great literature. When it's raining outside, usually bad things happen. These kind of common themes pop up all the time in literature, similar to the hero's journey. And at the very end of the book, he kind of lands on two possibilities. Either one, there is some great story that has all of these elements, or it's and, and it's particular to human people that there is meaning in these symbols. And it's God given, or on the other hand, somebody at the, at the very beginning told a story like this and we're all just copying that person or, you know, we're copying. So it seems like more than just the hero's journey, there are many things that are particular to the human imagination that got put in us. And that's why the stories we tell have certain themes. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily inconsistent. I think both can be true. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, <clears throat> I think that, you know, one of the other things about this is that when you look at Christianity, I mean, you see, you know, in Christian theology, you see a highly developed, you see this all very highly developed, uh, all of these elements together in, in this very sophisticated whole that you see in Christian theology. And <clears throat> I think what strengthens Chesterton's argument is, and, and what, what makes it not just an alternate theory— is the way he sort of presents it at Blatchford, all these who are really arguing for it, is that there's there's no other system of um, sort of my- mythical <laughs> system that matches it in sophistication. I mean, you had all these gods and you had all, <clears throat> excuse me, all of these these other elements of this pattern, but never worked together in the way that Christianity has uh, has uh, presents itself. You end the article on this concept of eucatastrophe. Mm-hmm. Will you explain that word? And- uh, yeah, and I it's one of those things, even reading uh, Tolkien, I don't completely understand, but the he says, um, it is the bad ending suddenly turned into the good ending. So I, I assume what he's referring to here um, is, and, and then he refers to the Christian eucatastrophe, which is Christ is crucified. He's executed. Okay. It's over, but it's not over. Um, you, you then, that, that is the thing that is required to have the greatest thing of all, which is the resurrection. Uh, I think that's what he's referring to the Christian. You could tell he's, he's, he's saying that that thing of having a bad ending and, and then having some good come out of that is common in these stories, but the Christian eucatastrophe is the crucifixion and the resurrection, the good thing coming out of what appeared to be the, the defeat, the victory coming out of the defeat. Paul, any other insights on eucatastrophe? What, how does that word land in you? And what do you think of that concept? Well, what I was thinking of is actually uh, the fall in Genesis and, and um, in the Catholic liturgy at Easter vigil, there's a, there's a, ah, the name's escaping me right now, but um 
basically a song that's chanted or said or something that says, Oh, happy fall that one for us. So great a savior, right? This idea that there's that, that Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, and, but that fault brought about something greater, right? So when there's, when there's something bad that happens that, that God is able to turn that around and use that for his glory is something that, um, that Christianity, I think sort of has a monopoly on in a way that, um, you, I, I don't know, this may be a half-baked thought, but I went back to Star Wars and thought, you know, it's, I, I can't really come up with any good examples of you catastrophe there. I mean, maybe you could say Darth Vader killing Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan then leading Luke, but it, it does not have nearly the same pull that that a, a, a God becoming man dying and in that death conquering death for us all, uh, I think has. It's all, they're all cheap imitations. And the interesting thing about this is it ha- it has this fundamental when you when you when you read that story of the of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. There's some pull to that. It's something that does match something inside of us, and yet we never could have made it up. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. This is a weird or or adjective. or it would have always seemed so impossible, mm-hmm. right? It would have seen. Seemed like well, this is a story we tell ourselves, but there's there's nothing to it, and it would have felt cheap. But mm-hmm. because we know that there is actually one time that it happened, it, it and 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 that redeemed us that we have. Yeah, and and we're we're so inured to it. We we it's so so common to us. It doesn't seem to many of us living in the modern West as being all that spectacular. And you know, Chesterton makes this remark in The Everlasting Man. He says, if Christianity, um, if Christianity could could just be uh, pass itself off as, and he, he's speaking in a pretty secular, because England is pretty secular by the time, Europe pretty secular by the time he's, he's writing. He said, he said, if Christianity could be passed off as a brand new religion from the East, it would sweep everything before it. And I, <laughs> you know, it we, we're, we're so familiar with it, and then yet, if you go back and you look at it, maybe from this perspective, you realize how amazing it really is. Yeah, it's a, it's a great article, and I would recommend that anybody re- read it. And on that point, I want to end, Tony, with this. Have you realized how Martin weaponizes his lack of memory in that if he made up the term monomyth, we obviously would have thrown it out right away, but because we don't know if it's from someone legitimate or not, it's in the article. So he's kind of weaponized his... Well, the whole thing is weaponized. I mean, you asked him at the very beginning why he wrote this article. Well, he's the editor of The Classical Teacher, and he decided that we needed to do... Put one of his articles in? Well, no, he always decides that. (laughs) He decided that we needed to do one on heroes, and so then he immediately says, oh, I have an article on that. It's all his, uh, our themes or whatever's on Martin Cawthorn's mind. That's where this comes from. Whatever's on his mind, whatever he wants to write about, that becomes the theme hmm. of the catalog. And then we have to build everything else around it. So I, basically. I'll have to say very well stated. Yes, thank you. Well, it was a good theme. It was a good discussion. <laughs> thank you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, 
Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com.